Welcome to State of the Bay. This is Grace Wan. Every Monday night here on State of the Bay, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, we're talking with Calamatters reporter Carolyn Jones about attacks on LGBTQ rights in California schools. Then, tech billionaires want to build a planned community in Solano County. Will this help with the state's housing crisis? And would you want to live there? Finally, we'll sit down with Kathy Spiller, feminist and editor of 50 Years of Ms., the best of the pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. We're live and local, coming up after this news. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Five Americans who'd been jailed for years in Iran landed in Qatar today on their way back to the United States. NPR's Peter Canyon reports Iranians imprisoned in the U.S. were also released as the two countries implemented a prisoner swap announced back in August. The Americans now free include Imad Sharji, Murad Tabaz, and Simak Namazi. Namazi was the longest-held American by Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, having been arrested in 2015. In a statement, Namazi says his joy at soon being able to see his family again is, quote, laced with sorrow for the people still in Iranian prisons for, in his words, reporting the truth, for worshiping their God, for being a woman, for nothing. Namazi adds that, quote, as a hostage, 2,898 days of what should have been the best days of my life were stolen from me and supplanted with torment. Despite the prisoner swap, relations between Washington and Tehran remain tense over Iran's nuclear program, among other things. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. After more than a year of legal limbo, Planned Parenthood is once again providing abortions in Wisconsin. As Sarah Lear of Wisconsin Public Radio reports, the group made the decision to redeeming those services effective today. Wisconsin health care providers stopped performing elective abortions last June after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. That was largely because of a long-dormant 19th-century state law. But Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin says a July circuit court opinion makes clear that law actually applies to violence resulting in miscarriage rather than an abortion done with the patient's consent. Tanya Atkinson is the group's CEO. In consultation with attorneys, physicians, partners, and stakeholders, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is confident in our decision to resume abortion care in Wisconsin. Circuit court case is ongoing and will likely be appealed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Lear in Madison. Elon Musk says the platform formerly known as Twitter could soon be placed behind a paywall. As NPR's Bobby Allen explains, Musk says it's aimed at combating bots, but also comes as the company struggles financially. The platform formerly known as Twitter has been free the past 17 years, but Elon Musk wants to change that. In a live stream conversation with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Musk said X is moving towards charging all users for use of the social network as a way of fighting bots. A bot costs a fraction of a penny, call it a tenth of a penny. But if, if somebody even has to pay you know, a few dollars or something, some, some minor amount, the effective cost of bots is very high. And then you also have to uh, get a new payment method every time you have a new bot. Advertising on the platform is down 60% since he took it over. Charging for blue check verification badges hasn't helped. Musk has previously said if he can't turn the company around, bankruptcy is on the table. Bobby Allen, NPR News. The Dow closed up six points. This is NPR. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm your host, Grace Wan. This hour, we'll be talking about California Forever, a planned community that Silicon Valley tech elites hope to build in Solano County. 
Then we'll hear from the editor of the new book, 50 Years of Ms., the best of the pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. But first, the nation's culture wars have come to California schools. Some school districts, predominantly in conservative regions of the state, have passed policies that limit the rights of LGBTQ young people. Their curriculum changes, book bans, and restrictions on flying the pride flag on school campuses. An example of these policies, one which has been adopted in several districts, requires school staff to notify parents if a child identifies as transgender or gender nonconforming, or if the child asks to be called by a different name or pronouns. Here to give us the latest is Carolyn Jones. She's the K-12 education reporter for Cal Matters. Welcome to State of the Bay, Carolyn. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, let us help us get the table set here and understand what's happening. One of the school districts at issue is the Chino Valley School District, and it has a set of these policies. Can you tell us what the school district there is asking parents or asking educators to do? Yeah, the policy that they passed in July uh, stated that teachers or any other school staff have three days to notify parents if they discover that a child is identifying as a gender other than what's on their official school records. Wow. And other districts like Sonal Valley, which is located just east of Fremont, they have followed a similar path. What are they doing? Well, in Sonal, they uh, banned flags, <laughs> except for the U.S. flag and the California Flag, and many believe that this is uh, targeted specifically toward rainbow flags, mm. which some, you know, the school staff had flown occasionally over the past couple of months. And so they believe it's a response to that. Yeah. Why are school districts at this moment in California adopting policies like this? And how are they able to do that? Well, California has uh, something called local control, which means that school boards actually have quite a bit of autonomy when it comes to enacting policies. Um, and for the most part, the system has worked pretty well, except in the past you know, couple months, year or two, we've seen more and more school districts kind of pushing the limits of that and enacting policies that some state leaders say violate uh, state civil rights laws. And we've seen that a couple times now in Chino and in elsewhere. And the state is starting to push back. Mm. Um, I understand that the attorney general even has a lawsuit filed against Chino Valley. Tell us a little bit about that. That's correct. Just after Chino Valley adopted this policy over the summer, uh, State Attorney General Rob Bonta filed a lawsuit. Well, he launched an investigation and filed a lawsuit. Um, and a judge down there um, granted his temporary restraining order. So the policy has been stopped for now while the litigation moves forward. And he argues that in the case of Chino Valley, that this policy is essentially discriminatory and violates students' right to privacy. Are parents in these school districts supportive of what the the school boards are doing? Is there an outcry or is most of the opposition coming from outside those districts? Well, I think it's pretty mixed. I think that there's, I mean, from what I can gather, it seems to me there's parents on both sides. The school boards have these new majorities, very conservative majorities who are pushing these through. But there's definitely opposition um, locally and, of course, across the rest of the state. Mm. And I mean, the critics of these policies are saying what? That this violates kids' rights or parents' rights, family rights, or this is the right thing to do? Well, families who are against these policies say that they, you know, that they're discriminatory against LGBTQ students who are an especially vulnerable group of students as it is. They're, you know, far more prone to anxiety and depression, skipping school, 
dropping out. Um, they have, you know, a host of challenges that their peers do not have. And so they're saying that these policies are really making life much more difficult for these students and their families. If you were, um, is there an age range on these types of like the notification policy? Are you supposed to notify a family of any student under the age of 18 or is there um, a limit? I believe it's any student uh, under the age of 18. Correct. Wow. And is there anywhere in the state where this is being enacted and is happening right now? Not that I know of, although I know that several other districts have passed such policies, um, at least that I, you know, five that I, can, I know of, uh, Murrieta, Orange, uh, Rockland, um, and Temecula is the other one. They've all enacted similar policies. Um, and, and the policies around both uh, banning flags or notification or both? These are the, you know, the so-called forced outing policies. Temecula also has a flag ban, you know, in addition to Sunol. Um, and then Temecula has also tried to, um, attempted to ban a textbook, a, an elementary school social studies textbook that mentions Harvey Milk. Mm. Um, that got reversed after the state put some pressure on them, after Governor Gavin Newsom actually stepped in and really called them out on that and said that he would provide the textbooks directly <laughs> to the students and then build the district. <laughs> and the district backtracked after that. Well, I think people might be surprised that this is, I mean, when you talk about it and hear about it, you think, well, oh, that's happening in Florida, right? Not in California. Um, are Is this going to be something that, these school districts are going to be talking about in terms of campaigning and election? I mean, is it part of the bigger political cultural war? Well, it seems to be. Um, I, you know, you're right. In the red states, there's, you know, many, many school boards and states, you know, that have these policies. So it's not unheard of. And I think that these are, um, we're starting to see this crop up in California. And as we head toward a really contentious election season, I think we can expect to see more of it. I think that they're are conservative groups out there that have a playbook and have a very organized strategy to um, enact these policies through school boards. And there are school boards in California that are very receptive to this. Mm. And there, we're talking right now about the election, and there are groups in California trying to put three initiatives on the November 2024 ballot aimed at curbing the rights of transgender youth. Can you describe those for us? That's right. Well, one of them would be, you know, the, the so-called uh, forced outing policy, parental notification. That would make it a statewide law. Um, the other initiative would restrict segregated activities, including clubs, um, sports teams, you know, locker rooms, bathrooms, to girls who were, you know, cisgender girls, basically. Um so, and then the third policy would, um, uh, the third policy, sorry, I'm blanking. <laughs> well, the third policy, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. The yes. third policy would, um, ban hormone therapy and surgery for, you know, anyone under, under age 18 who wants to undergo, um, gender reassignment surgery. Even with the, um, permission of their parents, they wouldn't be able to do that. Correct. I mean, it seems pretty wide sweeping. And again, it doesn't feel like a Cali I mean, not to paint a broad brush on California politics, but it is a fairly progressive liberal state. And these don't feel like progressive liberal kinds of propositions. When it comes to parental notification, if a teacher doesn't make that notification under these laws or, or school district guidelines, what happens? Are they suspended? 
Well, they would be in violation of school policy and then whatever the procedures that that particular district has for, you know, disciplining teachers. That's right. I'm curious. I mean, what do the teachers unions say about this? Teachers unions don't like it. Um, Mm. Teachers don't like it. I mean, they say they have a million other things to do all day and they don't want to be, you know, gender police. Um, Also, other school staff don't like it. Counselors really don't like it. Um, They say that you know, what happens, what, what students tell counselors is, is definitely subject to privacy and confidentiality laws and that this is a real violation of that. And they say that, you know, it causes a real chilling effect on the entire campus, not just the LGBTQ students, because then they start wondering, oh, gosh, you know, which teacher is going to, who can I trust, who, who can I not trust? So they say it has a really, you know, a bad ripple effect. I mean, I just can't imagine it. Puberty is hard as it is. Being a teenager is not easy. And feeling like you might be, you know, something that you're trying to struggle with and you maybe don't want to talk to your family about is a big issue. I mean, I mean, you it would, I think, make you not want to talk to your teacher about stuff. That's pretty tough. Um, so, Carolyn, tell me, what are you looking for next? Where where do you think this story will take take you? Well, I'm going to keep an eye on these initiatives to see what kind of momentum uh, they pick up. And I'm also going to see, you know, what other school districts follow suit. I mean, maybe this is the end of it. It's just these five or six or maybe it'll continue. I expect it will continue, but I'm kind of curious to see where it continues. Is it going to be strictly in red areas or is it going to be in more purple areas? Mm -hmm. I mean, Snowl is in the Bay Area. So that's something I'm going to be keeping a close eye on. And also, I think that parents feel very strongly about this issue on both sides and I'm going to be curious to see if, the, if those opinions change, if more of a consensus develops over time. I'm just curious, too, for parents who might be facing this issue or want to learn more, if you're banning books about it, how are you supposed to learn about it? You know. So, And are there any districts where the parents are coming up with policies that are um, anti this? In other words, affirming policies, um, affirming the rights of transgender kids or LGBTQ kids. Is that on the table anywhere? Sure. You know, plenty of districts are very supportive of LGBTQ students um, and their friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And statewide, California has a number of laws in place to protect those students. Um, You know, in California, students can use, they can play on whatever sports team they want. They can use whichever bathroom or locker room they want. Students have a right to privacy, uh, you know, for for this particular situation. Um, so there's a lot of protections out there that California has enacted for these students. And are those then are those guidelines and these protections are at odds with each other? Is this going to end up in the courts? Yes, it already is in the courts. Um, and so far, we have some contradictory rulings. Um, the judge in Chino Valley, which San Bernardino County, um, granted the state's request for a restraining order. So that's on hold for now. And that's going forward. But meanwhile, in Escondido, a pair of middle school teachers sued that school district saying that that district's policy, which aligns with the state policy to protect students' privacy, was a violation of their freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And a judge last week granted their request for a restraining order. So right now we have, you know, we the courts are arguing this, and it'll be interesting to see. I think both sides would kind of want to see this resolved and escalated and see these laws settled once and for all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's something definitely to keep an eye on, and I hope hopefully you'll come back to State of the Bay and let us know what's happening. 
Yes, happy to. Yeah. Well, that was Carolyn Jones. She's the K-12 through reporter for CalMatters. Coming up next on State of the Bay, California Forever's plans for a new Solano County city. And we'll take your questions. That's right after a short break. But first, we're in the midst of KALW's fall membership campaign. Here at State of the Bay, we love connecting you with creators, thinkers, activists, and leaders who move critical conversations forward. Whether you keep the radio tuned to KALW all day long or listen to the podcast on demand, please consider making a contribution. Give us a call at 800-525-9917 or go online to KALW.org. Your support makes shows like State of the Bay possible. Stay tuned for more. Hi, this is Peter Thompson from Bluegrass Signal reminding you that supporting KALW is easy and extra beneficial when you become a sustaining member. This happens when you designate a monthly contribution that's charged to your preferred credit or debit card. All you need to do is click Make This a Monthly Donation on the Donate page at KALW.org or tell the kind soul who answers your call at 800-525-9917. As a KALW sustaining member, you increase the value of your gift to us because you provide the station with a stable source of monthly income to support the programs you enjoy, you reduce the cost of processing your your contribution and you eliminate the cost and the hassle of membership renewal. A sustaining membership enables us to keep on-air fundraising to a minimum. Just decide how much you're able to donate to KALW each month. Click on donate at KALW.org or call 800-525-9917 and deepen your engagement with local public radio with a sustaining membership. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm your host, Grace Wan. Silicon Valley investors have purchased over 50,000 acres of farmland in eastern Solano County over the past five years. They're calling this new project California Forever, a place where, according to them, there will be, quote, good-paying jobs, homes that people can afford, and green energy, not just to this area, but to all of Solano County. While plans for this dream city are currently in their early stages, some residents, local politicians, and activists are already expressing concerns about the project. And due to the state's regulatory process, it may be years before any ground is actually broken. Is this a good idea? And what can we learn from other types of planned communities that dot the state? To find out more, we're going to be talking to Sarah Karlinski. She's the senior advisor and point person on California Forever at SPUR, the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. Welcome to State of the Bay, Sarah. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. We're happy to have you. We also have Alan Hess. He's a California historian and architect and an authority on California modernism. Hess is the author of books on Frank Lloyd Wright and Oscar Niemeyer, among others. Welcome to State of the Bay, Alan. Uh, Thank you very much. Great. First, we're going to open the phone lines a little early because we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the California Forever Project? And would you want to live there? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay or email us at stateofthebay at org. Sarah, I want to start with you. So this group, working under the name Flannery Associates, has been buying up land in Solano County for years now. Give us a little background about who's behind Flannery and what brought this group together. 
Yeah, sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. So um, we know a lot more than we did uh, a month or two ago, um, thanks to a lot of reporting by the New York Times and the Chronicle and others. So um, as we understand it, or in 2017 or thereabouts, um, a fellow named Jan Shamrick, who's a former Goldman Sachs trader, formed Flannery Associates, um, and this entity uh, basically has the idea of creating a new city in Solano County. Um, they were able to attract significant investment from a variety of uh, tech investors, very wealthy tech investors. Um, it's re- reported that um, these investors have funded the 50,000 acre purchase that you mentioned, um, costing roughly $800 million. Um, and uh, in terms of what um, kind of why this particular area, you know, we don't we don't know for sure why uh, Solano County, but we can make some good guesses. Um, I think the the location of, uh, of their land holdings are um, roughly, you know, an hour outside of the sort of inner core of the San Francisco Bay Area, roughly 50 minutes from Sacramento. Um, and the land itself is open agricultural land, um, but it's not, you know, swamp land. It's not a terrible fire risk. So, um, in some ways, um, but not all, it's, it's well located. Well, you know, SFGate is reporting that they did a survey um, in Solana County to see what residents might be interested in. And from my, my understanding of reading that article is the residents are not interested in getting a minor league baseball team, but they are interested in good jobs. What else is this group offering or do we know what they're offering um, for this planned community? Yeah, I mean, I think you can see uh, from from their website part of what they're thinking about and offering. So it, you know, part of it is good paying jobs, of course. Um, part of it is affordable housing, which I'm sure we're going to be getting into um, this concept more of, you know, housing that the that the region absolutely needs at price points that people can afford. Um, there's part of the website that talks about home ownership opportunities. Um, and then, as you mentioned uh, in your comments at the top of the hour, you know, talk about um, sustainable energy, sustainable energy systems, and then open space and, and park preservation. Well, Alan Hess, I want to bring you into the conversation. You're an architectural historian and an architect yourself. I mean, California is no stranger to planned communities. Can you give us a brief overview of, you know, after World War II, a lot of these suburbs came up, uh, came into being. What type of role did planned communities play in the growth of California? Well, there was a housing crisis uh, in the uh, after the World War II, just as we have today, different kind, but nonetheless, uh, a great deal of pressure. And uh, that led to the building of uh, suburbia, um, uh, whether around you know, San Jose and Sunnyvale up uh, north or down around the San Fernando Valley, uh, San Gabriel Valley down south, except a lot of the that housing was not well thought out and planned. It provided housing, but it had not really integrated the proper number of schools, parks, libraries, convenient shopping centers, convenient uh, uh, circulation for cars and uh, other and bikes and so forth. And so by the end of the 1950s, architects and planners were beginning to realize uh, very clearly that these suburban areas that were solving the housing crisis 
but we're not as ideal as they could be. That led them to come up with this idea. It had been around for a long time, actually, with smaller uh, examples in the 1930s. Uh, but um, how to master plan an entire city um, to get the proper balance of all of those amenities and things like open space, recreation, jobs, also diversity of housing. Uh, instead of having one type of housing, you would have uh, smaller townhomes, but next to um, single-family homes, so you would have a diverse population as well. All of these things were thought out, planned, before the first spade of earth was turned uh, on the construction of these. And this happened all across the state, uh, up in uh, the north, um, uh, Foster City, uh, the Kaiser Homes in San Jose, uh, uh, Ross Rossmore out in Contra Costa County, down south. Um, there was, of course, uh, Laguna Niguel, Mission Viejo, Valencia, and particularly Irvine, which turned out to be one of the most successful master plan communities in the country. Well, I have to put a shout out because you mentioned my hometown, which is Mission Viejo. I grew up in a planned community, and I remember when I went off to college trying to explain the suburb that I lived in, and my friends were saying, I went to college on the East Coast, and they're like, wow, your hometown looks like the sub suburb from E.T. I'm like, yep, yep, yep pretty much. <laughs> That's what it looks like. So tell me about Irvine. It's, this mass it's really a well-known master plan community in California. Why was it such a success, Alan? Um, it was very intelligently planned by an architect named William Pereira, and he brought together two very powerful and wealthy groups. One was the uh, regents of the University of California. The other was the landowner, which was uh, the Irvine Company. Um, so there were resources, but there was a purpose as well. They had a brand new university, UC Irvine, at its core, which provided a center provided population, but also provided jobs and the possibility of growth with new inventions, new businesses uh, coming out of the university. Um, but in terms of what's important about uh, the master plan communities, it's not the big theory about them, but rather how that theory is applied at ground level, the architecture the places that people live in, where they go to school, where they uh, are riding their bikes and recreation centers and pools and all of those things. And Irvine um, did a really good job initially of planning all of those elements, putting them together. At the time that was built out, Alan, was there skepticism um, about what they were trying to do there as there is right now about the Solano Kani project? Not like today. <laughs> uh, it's very different. There are uh, bigger population, more pressures. There are much, many more regulatory um, uh, rules and agencies and so forth uh, to deal with. Um, so at the time, uh, Irvine was mostly agricultural. It was open space. Uh, there wasn't really much around it uh, except agriculture. So um, there wasn't uh, the resistance uh, that we're seeing today to the sorts of issues which are you know, very legitimate ones 
today to re uh, to to raise, mm-hmm. but um, uh, they were able to get over that um, at a different time. Yeah, and Sarah, I want to talk about that. The, I mean, on paper, if you talk about a place like Irvine, it was farmland. It was by a couple of rich developers. It was a planned community. It was meant to ease a housing crisis. And, you know, this is, we're talking 50s, 60s, 70s, not a lot of pushback. Very different from what we're hearing about Solano County and what's in the news. What do you think about that difference? Well, um, oh, this I is for am- Sarah. I, Sarah, I was just—if you don't mind, Alan, I'll get to you. But Sarah, what sure. do you think? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think you know, I think I think it is. There are different times. I mean, the the time that you're talking about for for Irvine, there wasn't um, maybe as much um, thought or pushback, as it were, on the the notion of um, single family homes and sort of single family development as. Um, being sort of the best way to ease the housing crisis. I think we're in a, a different place sort of in the um, the conversation around planning. I think there's much more of a focus on how do we build housing near transit, utilize the existing infrastructure that we have, um, preserve our agricultural and farmland. Um, and I also think that, you know, over the years, there is more um, suspicion, if you will, of, of, planning, because I think um, people have seen what has happened when uh, planners sort of get to do what they like in sort of an, an unmitigated uh, form and fashion. It always it doesn't always turn out so great. So there's sort of like more, I think, skepticism of this notion of um, planners or builders being able to pull off um the creation, the full creation of a, like a true city and how we think of the term city, you know, the, the, um, just the heterogeneity that is, that is needed to create places that are full of life, that have energy. Um, when people think about cities, I don't think they think about, um, the sameness that might come from a, a fully master plan development. Mm. And, you know, does the fact that these investors are from Silicon Valley, is that hurting this project or helping it, do you think? Well, I think beauty is in the eye of the beholder when it comes <laughs> to how people feel about uh, tech billionaires. Um, I think that um, certainly... Um, for many, there's just greater skepticism of uh, what it is that uh, tech tech wants to to create and tech wants to bring. Um, Molly Turner, who's a Spur board member, actually just had a piece in the New York Times kind of talking about um, the role of tech and how tech thinks about city making. And I think, you know, there's, um, I think, a healthy skepticism around why are they interested in in doing this? And um, what do they think the good um, in the platonic sense of the word is when it comes to to cities? And does that match up with what happening what happens in a well-functioning democracy? Well, let me reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm your host, Grace Wan. Tonight, we're talking about the new Bay Area city tech billionaires plan to build in Solano. We're joined by Sarah Karlinski, senior advisor and point person on California Forever at Spur, and also Alan Hess, California historian and architect. 
we would love to hear from you. Do you live in a master plan community in the Bay Area? What do you like or not like about where you live? And what would you like to see this new development include? You can join us by calling 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us an email on stateofthebay at kalw.org. And when you call, please consider donating. We'd love you to support We'd love you to support State of the Bay and KALW's other unique program. If you want to give us a donation, you can call us at 1-800-525-9917 or go online to KALW.org. I want to take some listener calls here. Uh, Line one, Jonathan from San Francisco. Welcome to State of the Bay. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much. Um, I'm curious about the way that the land was purchased. Um, It's my understanding that the land was zoned as farmland, and the reason they were able to buy so much at the price that they bought it at was because uh, there's restrictions on what can be done on that land, and that land uh, is more affordable for farms because uh, we need farms. And I'm wondering how they're going to be able to even move forward with this plan when the property was bought at uh, reduced prices, people who were selling it didn't know what the land was going to be used for, and it's going to be using up valuable farmland um, that uh, we need for food. That's Thanks a, so much. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Sarah, what what are the regulatory obstacles that they will be facing? I mean, this sounds like one of them. Yeah, that, that was a great question. And I think, yes, I think they, the reason that they were able to buy the land at the price points that they were is because it's zoned for agricultural or, you know, other basically non-developable use. So um, right now in Solano County, there is um, land use is governed by um, a ballot measure called the Orderly Growth Ordinance, which contemplates um, development only in seven existing cities um, in Solano County, of which this development is not one. So um, what would need to happen first is that there would need to be a ballot measure to that all of uh, the residents of Solano County would have the opportunity to vote on to amend the orderly growth ordinance to allow for development um, on this property. So that's kind of the first order of business in terms of um, actually creating this new city. Then um, if that ballot measure were to be successful, were to pass successfully, then um, the the developers would need to basically go to the Board of Supervisors of Solano County because this is an unincorporated part of Solano County, and they would need to um, present their plans to the board, and then the board would vote on whether to allow development to occur. Well, another listener writes, how will this new city impact the Sacramento Delta and where will the water come from? The Delta already supplies water to 30 million residents and 6 million acres of farmland. You know, and that idea of competing resources and, you know, the state has been in a drought for a really long time raises this question. And Alan, I wanted to bring that question to you. You know, in developing these types of really large communities, we're at a different time. Resources are a little bit different. What does this community need to be thinking about? Um, quite a number of things. Certainly the political issue, how do you get the support of the uh, the people who are there? Uh, but also, I think, uh, creativity. I mean, there are these challenges of, of water, of transportation, of, you know, what kind of jobs can be there, especially today when um, office buildings are going empty. 
these days because the pandemic has changed the way cities, people work in cities uh, more than ever. So um, they're just, um, I'm hoping that uh, the people behind uh, this project uh, will be creative. That's what they were back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, they uh, weren't just trying to repeat what had been done before, but to really address, understand the issues of that time and solve them. Now, you know, with tech people, you know, how is technology, uh, communications and whatever going to change the way people live in the future? That's what they should be looking at now and creating new types of architecture for that new technology. That's what they did back in the 60s. Right. Well, we have another listener who writes, are we hearing opposition to this development just because Silicon Valley is involved? We need a lot of housing in California. And that let's that goes into, you know, the housing shortage we do have. And, you know, um, Sarah, I wanted to ask you about that. What's so wrong about building thousands of new housing units? Yeah, that's um, it's a great question. And it really speaks to the way that we think about this issue at Spur um, has to do with the sort of the tension between two sets of core values that we have. So, you know, on one hand, there is um, a strong need for sustainability and for building in the in the urbanized part of the Bay Area. Um, we estimate that we need roughly 2.2 million housing units over the next 50 years in order to meet um, the need of uh, the Bay Area for, for housing. And um, we also found that we can build all that housing within the urbanized core of the Bay Area. But the problem comes um, from the fact that we we haven't we haven't been building enough housing. And if you look at the past several decades, we've failed to meet the needs um, or housing needs within the urbanized portion of the Bay Area. And so that's where um, the idea of this particular city can become very provocative um, because it can fill a housing need that that is really vital to the um, health of the of the Bay Area um, in a way that we just haven't historically been able to do so. Well, let's go back to the phones. We have Anne from San Francisco. Hi, Anne. Welcome to State of the Bay. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, um, I guess I'm just a little concerned because it seems like this is a development idea sort of straight out of the 1950s, you know, without consideration of water consumption, without considering that we're realizing we really need denser housing to have a sustainable housing plan. As we expand, like, the housing footprint, we need things that have multi-unit buildings, and we need things that have, like, you know, metro systems that support the transportation of folks going to and fro jobs. Like, I guess this doesn't make sense to me at all because it feels like 1950 or 1970, and I don't feel, I mean, I feel like that's, like, this mythos will promote the development of this city, perhaps, to the detriment of the surrounding infrastructure and to the detriment of the notion of needing to make more sustainable housing so that everyone can have a home. 
Oh, these are great points, Anne. Um, I want to take those to you, Alan, in the sense that, you know, is this a 1950s kind of idea? Like, just push people out to the suburbs, away from city cores, you know, let's start fresh and start all over again. I mean, should we try to be building inside the city versus outside the cities that we already have? Well, that is one of the solutions, though I think this myth that California was just unregulated sprawl in the 1950s and 60s um, simply isn't true. Um, Again, there was a lot of bad planning, very definitely, and we're suffering from that uh, today in many ways in terms of traffic and other things. But it was the intelligent planning of these master plan communities all over the state and California was the leader in the country uh, with these master plan ide- uh, cities with new ideas directly designed to solve the imminent problems that they were facing then. That's less than for today. For example, Irvine in its planning was very conscious of the wetlands and the topography, the hillsides, and addressed the natural setting uh in the terms of where buildings went and uh, how they were serviced and so forth. So um, I think we need to get rid of this idea that um, um, the 1950s and our development then was entirely bad to be thrown out. There are important lessons there that uh, and, and directions, uh, attitudes that I think can help us uh, today. Well, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, once, once a uh, master plan community goes from being an unincorporated um, community like the, the town that I grew up in and then becomes a city itself and planning, it becomes a more conventional experience where a planning board and a board of supervisors, they get to decide what's built. D- don't we just go back to sprawl then uh, and um, political infighting about what can be built? I mean, doesn't that bring us right back to where we are, frankly, in San Francisco? It's so darn hard to build it here. Yeah, you know, it. I don't know if it brings us back to sprawl necessarily, but you know what you, what you're talking about is um, basically when when a city does incorporate, it's it's no longer governed by the board of supervisors, which um, from a land use perspective regulates all the unincorporated portions of of land in a county. It becomes its own city. So it has its own city council. It will have its own mayor. It will have its own planning department. It will have its own planning commission. Um, And in that sense, it will be like a traditional city. And in that sense, it will also be responsive to democracy. Um, And so I think there is a tension between the idea of a um, utopian city where the people who are planning the city just sort of carry out the plan for the city and what happens when that comes into conflict or um, contrast with what the desires are of the of the residents and how that gets expressed through through democracy mm-hmm. um so there's no way um that i know of within the state of california or anywhere in the united states just to have sort of a, a you know like a, a monarchy or whatever <laughs> you might want to call it you know within within a city boundaries like you're you're just going to have to deal with with people you know yeah. at some point you have to deal with people and people have different ideas and that is the beautiful and confounding things about 
a democracy. I mean, it gets messy with those HOAs. I mean, once they tell you what color you can paint your house, you know. Um, well, well, HOAs are a whole other matter. That <laughs> we do a whole other show on HOAs. <laughs> well, in the minutes that we have left, I, I'd love to ask the both of you, if this was your dream city, what would you want to make sure it included? And I'll start with you, Alan. Okay. Well, um, again, a good architecture at the mm. ground level, good landscape planning, open space uh, for recreation, but also to bring uh, nature into the lives of the people uh, living there. Uh, the political issue is also one. I mean, it's a delicate balance between uh, applying these progressive theories and something that will be realistic in the market economy, real estate industry um, of these times. So um, it's, uh, you know, the, the people doing California forever have really set themselves with a, a major, uh, 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 you know, problems to, uh, to address as they go forward. And what about you, Sarah? If this was your dream city, what, what do you want to make sure it would have in it? Well, I think um, similar to, to Alan, I'd want to see, first of all, I want to see just a mix of types of housing um, at different price points that people can afford. I mean, to, to me, if this were done really well, you would see apartment buildings, people could rent at reasonable prices, you would see home ownership opportunities, um, you would see hopefully sort of like a, a mix of different housing types that would be affordable to a wide variety of people. I'd also love to be able to get from one end of the city to the other end of the city without a automobile. It'd be mm -hmm. really amazing if you could just bike or walk or, you know, scoot or whatever it is um, within the city um, and get anywhere you need to go without the use of a private automobile. But I think for this particular development to be most successful, what what the builders of the city need to think about are the connectivity between the city and other places. And right now, there just really isn't any uh, public transit whatsoever mm. that serves this particular site. And that to me is the trickiest thing about this particular development was how and if it will be able to connect to um, various nodes of transit so that the people that right. live there can get other places because eventually they will want to leave the city. Right. <laughs> you don't want to live there all the time. Well, we'll have to see what happens next. And I want to thank you for joining us. We've been talking to Sarah Karlinski, a senior advisor at Spur, and Alan Hess, a California historian and architect. Thanks to you both for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll hear Ethan Elkind's interview with the editor of 50 Years of Ms., the best of the pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. Stay tuned. My name is Chris. I live in Glen Ellen, and I'm a sustaining member of KALW. I give ongoing monthly support to KALW because it's a great station. What is it that makes KALW a great station? It's the people. The people who are on the air, the people who are behind the scenes working in the studio, and the membership community. I love KALW. Thank you. Hi, my name is Don, and I'd like to tell you that I'm a sustaining supporter of KALW because I just love some of the independent shows, especially when they're music-related. Sarah K. Hill's Revolutions Per Minute on Sunday evenings is one of my favorites. So be sure to listen and join me as a sustaining member. 
You can do that at 800-525-9917 or at klw.org and clicking on that donate button right there at klw.org. Ms. Magazine is celebrating its 50th anniversary with a new book coming out tomorrow, 50 Years of Ms., the best of the pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. The book features a number of articles by Bay Area writers. And with us to talk about it is Kathy Spiller, executive director of the Feminist Majority Foundation and executive editor of Ms. Magazine. So Kathy Spiller, welcome to State of the Bay. Oh, thank you so much. So Kathy, you had 50 years of Ms. Magazines to represent in this book. How did you decide which of the pieces to include in it? was a brutal task. <laughs> it, it took about a year and a half to select the key pieces from each decade that we thought would really tell the story of this extraordinary movement for women's equality that has evolved over the 50 years, the range of issues that Ms. has reported on over the years. Obviously, abortion and reproductive rights was very critical. Violence against women, equality in relationships, not only uh, between women and men, but same-sex relationships as well. And how do you renegotiate those relationships as things are changing so rapidly? Ms. launched in 1972, and the movement for women's rights was really just breaking out in a major way and questions of what is a marriage and how should it be structured and what is child rearing and who should do it and how should that be shared in the workplace? What's harassment? Is that just something that a woman is supposed to expect or is that somehow a violation of her rights? All of those issues were being debated in living rooms. And so we wanted Ms. to capture all that because these changes and progress don't just happen because suddenly people realize that discrimination is wrong. The changes happen because there's an organized effort to make the change happen. Absolutely. And you mentioned the magazine being an early proponent of reproductive rights. It debuted in 1972, the year before the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade at a time when abortion was still illegal in most states. And I wanted to get your take. How central was this issue of reproductive rights to the founding of the magazine? Very central. The original petition in the first magazine with 53 famous women's names declaring they had abortions and in many cases, illegal abortions, was a breakthrough moment in this fight for reproductive rights and justice that goes on today. The Washington Post said that petition really changed the course of this fight for reproductive rights and justice because it it made visible that which had been invisible. Women didn't talk about their abortions. It was something to be ashamed of because all too often they were traveling across state lines and across country lines to secure abortions. And so you didn't talk about it. Ms. has covered this fight from day one and to this very day. We are covering the fight around whether the abortion pill is going to stay available, what's happening to women 
and girls in these states that have banned abortion? What are the health impacts? What are the impacts on their lives? All of this is in service really to galvanizing the significant majority support in this country for legal abortion. We have helped contribute to an increase in the population that now says it should be the decision of an individual uh, on whether or not to continue a pregnancy or end a pregnancy. And that is a sea change in this country. The problem, of course, that we have is a Supreme Court that has been stacked with reactionary judges and a Congress and state legislatures in many cases that don't reflect the fact that women are over half of the population in this country. Uh, there are only a couple of state legislatures that women are the majority, Nevada and Colorado. In places like Mississippi and Alabama that have banned abortion, women are not even 15% of the elected state legislators. When Justice Alito says, let this be decided at the state level by the politics, well, wait a minute, it's 85% of the vote is men in those state legislatures. And we've shown that in every state so far where the ballot has presented an issue to voters about whether or not abortion should be legal and accessible, we've won in some cases by overwhelming majorities. And in Kansas and Kentucky and obviously in California, it was huge. Well, you even covered the late term abortion legislation that was, the, that procedure was banned uh, in 2004, and you had an article at that point by Martha Mendoza, who is now a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the Associated Press here in Northern California, who wrote about her own late-term miscarriage, a really heartbreaking piece, and how that was complicated by uh, legislation on late-term abortions. Wondering if you could talk about that piece and uh, what the implications are of, of Ms. Magazine's coverage of, of this debate. That was an extraordinary piece, and it was an award-winning piece. And in fact, we're hoping that Martha can join us at some of the events in the greater Bay Area that we're planning to not only celebrate the publication of this book, really to bring together feminist communities to talk about how do we now move forward to restore abortion rights and to really reach full equality, which we're not there yet. Uh, but in this piece in particular, it shows the unexpected consequence, really, of these late-term or advanced gestational abortion restrictions. Her fetus had died in utero. I mean, this was a wanted pregnancy. And this is happening now to women in states that have banned abortions. They are ending up in critical condition because eventually a fetus that has died in utero will develop infections, and it now threatens her life. Uh, and by restricting access to abortion procedures, you are now endangering her life. Uh, and, and the question is, doctors are asking everywhere, how close to death does a, a patient have to be before they can intervene in these states that have banned abortion to provide the care that she needs to save her life? Uh, and, and then, of course, maternal mortality rates are going up, so women are dying. And the country, I think, is really waking up to what the impact of these terrible restrictions are. These kinds of candid and really personalized stories seem to be a hallmark of Ms. Magazine's approach. One last question for you on the progress since Ms. first came out 50 years ago. As I read Jennifer Piscopo's story just for 2021 about how Mexico has enshrined legal parity for women with men, a parody that American women still don't have. I couldn't help but wonder, 
how you feel about how the fight is going for women's rights, given that on so many of these issues, whether it's reproductive rights or equal pay or parental leave, we are not making uniform progress. So what, what is your assessment of how we're doing in terms of women's rights 50 years in from Ms. Magazine's founding? Well, there's no question that many challenges remain and that we have suffered some very significant setbacks. But I'm also very optimistic and hopeful because I believe when the history books are written that the decision by the Republicans to overturn Roe v. Wade, to stack the courts, to be a roadblock to progress in so many of the states and in Congress, that it will have been a fatal decision for them politically. Because what the reversal of Roe versus Wade has done is shocked and awakened this country and galvanized the fight for women's equality in a way that I'm not sure very much of anything else could have. We saw that after the 2016 elections and the massive turnout of women's marches across this country and worldwide. The largest mobilization of people in the history of the world to this day was the women's marches after the 2016 election. This has just supercharged that. We've seen it in the huge number of women who have stepped forward to run for political office and will eventually get to gender parity. I wish we had laws that mandate gender parity. Scalia said, look, the Constitution does not prohibit sex discrimination. If you want it to, you got to put an amendment in. And that's what the Equal Rights Amendment will do. And so I think that we will see tremendous progress going forward. I'm very hopeful and invite all of your listeners not only to get the book, but that they join this movement at the grassroots level in any way they can, because we need everybody in this fight as we move forward. Our lives depend on it. Kathy Spiller, executive editor of Ms. Magazine and editor of the new book coming out tomorrow, 50 Years of Ms. Congratulations on the book. I wish your magazine 50 more years of success and progress on women's rights. And thanks so much for being with us on State of the Bay. Thank you. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 for a State of the Bay climate special. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard, email us, stateofthebay at KALW.org. And finally, I can't let you go without asking you for a donation. Think about how much you rely on KALW throughout the day and when you hear breaking news. Give us a call at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Tonight's show was produced by Kendra Klang and Ann Harper. It was engineered by David Kwan and D-Minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night and thanks for listening.